finally making our way a little bit here. I guess I need to talk a little faster or you need to listen faster. I don't know which one it is here. Uh, but uh, it's good to be back again tonight. Let's have a word of prayer, then we'll begin. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your grace and kindness to us uh, this past week. And thank you for uh, the opportunity we have to study the Word of God together again and think about this epistle that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. And already we can see uh, many, many applications to our own culture, our own lives because there's always a tendency for things to crowd in and displace the gospel for us to uh, get our attention directed toward other things. Idolatry is always a problem for us. So help us, Lord, to uh, think through these things that the apostle is saying and help us, Lord, therefore, to have our minds and thoughts and actions be that which will be pleasing to you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're looking at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is chapters 1 through 4, where we're dealing with what I call divisions or differences of opinions uh, that have developed in the church at Corinth. And uh, Paul says there are two basic reasons for these divisions as he sees it. And the first one is be there, uh, one there, misunderstanding of the gospel message. Um, so the, the, tendency, uh, the tendency is to, when people, I'm sure that we, uh, people who go to, to foreign lands, to people who've had no connection with Christianity or anything, you know, people who are in third world countries, maybe they're paganism, they're, they're, they're worshiping idols or whatever. The tendency is always to, when they hear the gospel, to interpret it in terms of their own understanding and culture and religion, you know. And, you know, they, I, I've, I know uh, one of our missionaries to Africa, Rob Howe, uh, I've heard him talk about this a lot, you know, when he went to Africa. Uh, they have, their religion, their animism, their other things, you know, other kinds of pagan religions, polytheism and everything. And the tendency is when you explain the gospel to always just try to, they try to integrate that <laughs> with what they know and their own false religion, false ideas. And that's what we have here. Remember we said that the Corinthians were interpreting the gospel as some sort of philosophical message that uh, in the ancient world, they were various philosophies and philosophers, people who came to Corinth and spoke, and people followed them and uh, followed their teachings. And so they, 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 they tend to interpret that, that, that idea, uh, the gospel, like that. So they have a misunderstanding of the gospel. <clears throat> uh, so in these ancient philosophies, it's the, it's the best one, the most rational one, the most reasonable one. Well, that's got to be the right one. You know, and that's true in our world today, you know. When people f f have a certain philosophy in their life or they, they have certain ideas, they're following what they consider to be most rational, the most reasonable, what makes the most sense to them and so forth. And so Paul starts off and says, the problem with that when you look at the gospel is, 
there's a sense in which the gospel looks very foolish in contemporary cultures, in our culture. Uh, it, it's, it's hard for us to imagine because, you know, I grew up, as I said, and many maybe you have grew up in, in America, where at one time it, Christianity sort of dominated and it was kind of the civil religion and we prayed in school and all that. So we were used to that, but uh, that was not true in the ancient world. It's not where, where Paul, and it's not so much true today. Uh, people don't have a high opinion of our beliefs and our belief system. They think it's very prejudicial and not open and not accepting and so forth. We're narrow. You know, well, you mean Jesus is the only way? I mean, that can't be, you know. What about all these other people who don't know Jesus? You know, what's going to happen to them? I can't, he can't be... <laughs> You know, it can't be true that no man, no person comes to the Father except through Jesus. You know, that's just too narrow. So you can see where people uh, would have a, a bad opinion even today. And they did at, at Corinth. Uh, they had this wrong view of the gospel. They, they, and so Paul, Paul's trying to demolish that idea by saying, listen, uh, the people in your culture, when they look at the gospel they're going to actually, in many ways, think it's very foolish. It's going to appear very foolish. And he starts off, uh, we saw last time, 118 through 25, it can appear foolish in the, when the message itself, because you're talking about a crucified Messiah. That is, we are following a person who was executed by the Romans as a capital criminal, you know. That's, that's hard to accept, that we're going to follow this guy who was put to death on the cross. And that's the, that's the worst, only the worst criminals in the world get put on a cross <laughs> in the Roman world, you know. So you can see where people in his day, he said, people are going to think this is rather foolish that we're following this crucified Messiah. So uh, you've got to reevaluate, you know, the gospel, how you're thinking about the gospel, how people will think about the gospel. Uh, you're not going to convince people by the superiority of the message. In other words, in the ancient world, these philosophies, you convince someone because this, these ideas are more rational, they're greater, they're, they're better. And the gospel message in itself is not going to appeal to people, as we'll see, and it's not going to be very convincing. We know it works because God uses it. <laughs> the Holy Spirit uses that message to break people's, break the barriers down and bring people to accept it, but that takes the work of God. So he starts off by saying there's a sense in which you look at the message, it can be foolish. You know, the Greeks, the, Jew, the to talk about the Jews, a crucified Messiah. The Messiah was the king, the great one, the splendor, glory, and how would you follow? And, and to the Greeks, crucifixion, as we said, to the Romans appears like foolishness. And then he goes on to say uh, there's another sense in which the gospel appears to be foolish, and that's in this respect to the people who accept the message. In other words, it's not the intellectual elites who accept the message. Um, it's not the, not the most influential. He says in verse 26, not many of you, you Corinthians, 
were wise by human standards. You were not, you were not the most influential people. You were not the mo- people of most noble birth. You were not the, the wisest people necessarily. So he says, when you look at you know, the people who accept the gospel, they're not necessarily the most powerful people in, in your culture. They're not necessarily people who are considered the wisest, uh, the people who are the most influential. We all get that, you know. I mean, uh, the most influential people in our country are not the best Christians necessarily, you know, uh, are the richest people. Uh, we know what, you know, they're following wealth. And so he's saying, you know, just looking at the church here, uh, it doesn't, it's, it's not what the world, your world would conclude as the, 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 the smartest, the wisest, most influential are in your church. And he says the reason, the, what God has done, verse 27, we looked at last time, but God chose it to be this way. Uh, and we'll see why he, he says it. He says, God chose the foolish things of the world. Now, we said he uses things, but he's actually talking about people here. God chose the weak, weak, people, weak things to, to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised thing, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are. Uh, so as I said, if we look at the Corinthian church, uh, verse 27, they are not part of the elite, but just common people. Now, you know, Christians are from all walks of life and, and all kinds of people. Sometimes they are rich people. Sometimes they are very influential people, sometimes they're very powerful people, but not generally, you know, and that's not the general thing that happens. Uh, and the reason for this is because God chose people from, a, as I say, a particular socioeconomic background in Corinth to be saved for a particular purpose in order to shame the world, to bring it to nothing. So, you know, ultimately, it'll be seen, it'll be evident that not the, not the people that are most admired and thought to be the smartest, the wisest, most influential, in the end will turn out to be God's people necessarily. So uh, you're, you're, the Corinthians are admiring the wrong thing. You know, this, this, you know we, I don't know if this is exact parallel, but you get this kind of thing where isn't it true that, you know, some celebrity... Get say or says they're saved, you know, and then people just make a big deal out of this thing, you know. Some some uh, athlete supposedly gets saved, you know, and and sometimes these things go really bad, you know, <laughs> uh, and, and you know, or some politician or so forth, you know, supposedly. I mean, I hate to be too hard on Trump here, but <laughs> you know, supposedly he made a profession, you know, of faith and. But, you know, <laughs> I'm not so sure about all that with him. But and that's true of a lot of powerful people. They all, these people make professions. They say they're Christians, but, you know, sometimes their lives don't back it up. It's, it's, it's disappointing, you know. And so we, we have to be careful about following that kind of thing or getting too excited about that kind of thing. I mean, sometimes these people get saved and then they're put right to the top as though they have something important to say about Christianity. Well, they're just babies in Christ. They don't, they don't know the first thing about 
Christianity, and we shouldn't be listening to them necessarily. Uh, at, at, but, but that's the way it commonly works. So, the, as I say, the word chose occurs three times in these verses, and uh, Paul will, you know, the, the, you know, he defines this, so he's defining this word called back in verse 26, you know, God called. Think of what you were when you were called. God called us to this salvation, the effective call to salvation. And I say here in the next paragraph, instead of the wise, God chose the foolish things of the world or what the world counts foolish. Instead of influential, God chose the weak things so that those of noble birth, God chose the lowly things. What God did in the cross and in calling the lowly Corinthians illustrates that he's not beholden to the world. He's not accountable to the wise of this world, but by his gracious activity in Christ, he's actually shamed the wise. Now, by shame, uh, when Paul uses this word, he doesn't mean something subjective. He doesn't mean feelings. He's not talking about that they feel shame, they feel ashamed or anything like that. He's picking up the old, one of the Old Testament themes here uh, that expresses God's vindication over his enemies. Like Psalm, I mentioned some Psalms here, but uh, chose Psalm 35, 26, and 27. May all who gloat over my distress be put to shame and confusion. May all who exalt themselves over me be clothed with shame and disgrace. May those who delight in the vindication shout for joy and gladness. May they always say, The Lord be exalted, who delights in the well being of his servant. Um, so the point is that God has shamed these people in the sense that they'll be shown to have followed the wrong path. Uh, their, their perspective is wrong. Uh, so God, God has uh, planned His way of salvation, as we'll see, so that uh, people are not able to uh, boast in themselves, um, as he says in verse 29. So that, now that goes back to verse 28. Why did he choose these things? Why did he choose uh, the nothings, the things that are not? So that no one may boast before him. Um, I mean, it makes you think of Ephesians 2, uh, for by grace... You have been saved through faith, and it's not from yourselves or of yourselves. And it's not by works. It's so that no one can boast. So it's, it's, God has planned this salvation so people can't boast about their own accomplishments, that, that they did it themselves. So I said with this clause, Paul expresses the ultimate purpose of God's plan in order that no one may boast before God. So God deliberately chose the foolish things of the world, the cross, that's the message, and the Corinthian believers, so that there could be no boasting in his presence. So by choosing these lowly Corinthians, God has forever ruled out every imaginable human system of gaining his favor. So we, we, we can't gain his favor by our own efforts. It's, it's trust him completely or nothing. So we have to look away from ourselves and trust, put our faith in Christ, you know, in God. Uh, so one has to, you know, glory in God or put their trust in God 
There's only one kind of boasting that's acceptable, and that's boasting or glorying in God. Uh, you can't boast in yourself. Verse 30, it is because of Him that you're in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I say it's totally because of God and His electing grace that the Corinthians are Christians. It's because of Him, God, that you are in Christ, that you're a Christian. It's by His grace. God, Paul asserts that God made Christ to become true wisdom for us, which then is immediately interpreted in salvific terms. So he, he's kind of just laying out what God did for us in Christ. Righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Um, so he's saying God made Christ to be come wisdom, but not the kind that they are enamored with. Um, true wisdom is understood in the salvation that God has given us. And there he uses these three terms to illustrate this salvation or to explain this salvation. Righteousness, holiness, and redemption. So these three terms probably refer to the three aspects of salvation we talk about. The first one, righteousness, is thinking about justification. Remember, when we're initially to say, say we, are, we are justified, which means we are declared righteous. We're viewed as righteous. The righteousness of Christ is applied to us. So we're righteous because Christ's righteousness is applied. Then the second phase is sanctification or holiness. We are declared righteous, and then God wants us to become holy or righteous. That's progressive sanctification. And the final stage is the ultimate redemption. Now, the word redemption can be used of the initial... Sometimes we say, I've been redeemed. You know, I've been redeemed song. But sometimes redemption is used of the final phase, like Romans 8.23. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. So there's a sense in which we've been redeemed, we've been bought from the slave market of sin, but we're waiting for that future redemption, glorification, we could say. So uh, it's because of God that we are what we are. Uh, Christ is the wisdom, the true wisdom, and He has brought us salvation that can be described as you know, righteousness, holiness, redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I see here, so we see that there is wisdom with God, but it's the opposite from human wisdom that the Corinthians are currently delighting in and in a squabble over. Wisdom does not have to do with getting smart, nor with status or rhetoric. God's wisdom has to do with salvation through Christ Jesus. So all of this is made clear by this final clause, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So just as the ultimate goal in God's choosing the foolish things of the world was to eliminate human boasting in His presence so that no one could boast in His presence of what they did. 
the final goal here, he says, of Christ's work, work of Christ, was to make possible the one true ground of boasting. What could we boast or glory in? Uh, and that is the Lord. So if we're going to boast, we only can boast in the fact that God has chosen us, He has saved us, He has given us this righteousness, holiness, and redemption. All right, so chapter 2, we get to the third aspect. So Paul is trying to say, wait a minute, Corinthians, you're looking at the gospel incorrectly. If the world looks at the gospel, if, if you look at it through human depraved eyes, it's going to look foolish because of the message, because of the people who received it. And third, it's foolish with respect to the minister or preacher of the message. The gospel is foolish with respect to the minister or preacher. He says, verse 1, And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom, as I proclaim to you the testimony about God. To conclude his argument, I say Paul reminds the Corinthians about the character of his own preaching when he was among them. Both its form and its content. In the plan of the cross and in choosing the Corinthians, God in effect eliminated human boasting so the only boast left is in the Lord. And when Paul came to Corinth, he demonstrated the same reality. He was totally stripped of self-reliance so that God's power could be manifested and so that the Corinthians' faith might rest on God alone. So rather than rely upon rhetoric or philosophy, uh, Paul was bearing witness to God, that is, what God had done in Christ to bring about salvation. Verse 2 is going to explain. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul did not attempt to distinguish himself in either eloquence or philosophical reasoning because he had already resolved to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now, to know nothing does not mean that he left all other knowledge aside, but rather that he had the gospel, the, the, the message of the cross, the crucified Messiah, as his singular focus and passion while he was among them. He wasn't relying upon anything else but just the message of Christ to bring these people to Christ. So that's where you know, we easily get confused. And it's natural, I think, when you're first saved and you think about trying to witness to people, it can be daunting. You think, well, I don't know that much. I don't understand that much. You know, I don't, you know, I don't have a doctor's degree in New Testament, you know, so <laughs> how can I do this? Well, the truth is a doctor's degree in New Testament doesn't help that much <laughs> because, you know, it's just the simple message that God uses, you know. If you can just give that simple message, that's what the Holy Spirit... It, the Holy Spirit's the one who has to bring people to Christ. And, uh, you know, sometimes the best, quote, soul winners, you know, are just ordinary people who just 
uh, present the gospel in a simple way. And, you know, the more you present it, the more likely you are to see people saved, you know. So, I mean, I'm glad I know what I know, <laughs> you know. There's no, there's no reason to be stupid and not understand the Bible and not try to learn more about the Bible and all of that. But it's not, you know, superior wisdom and all that kind of stuff and learning that's ultimately going to convert people. And you know, it's, it's helpful if you can, you know, explain things to people. But, you know, it's really the work of the Spirit in, their, in the person. God working and taking that message of the cross uh, so it's yeah, we want to study, we want to learn, we want to try to understand what these that's why we're studying here. What's this book about? Hopefully this gives us a more complete picture. I don't want to knock knowledge because I spent my life <laughs> doing this kind of stuff. But at the same time, you know, it it it's it's uh it's it's it can be we can we can we can think that you know the the, the more I study, the more knowledge I have you know, I'll be more, you know, somehow I'll win more people to Christ. And that's not necessarily true. It's just faithful witnessing, telling people about the gospel, praying for them. That's what, that's what really does it. So, uh, and, and that's, what, that's what Paul is emphasizing here. He wasn't using some rhetorical skill. Now, he was a smart guy, obviously. But it's clear from this that he wasn't, a tremendous speaker in the sense of the Greek philosophical tradition. He didn't, he didn't have that rhetorical ability and, and things like that. I mean, I'd rather hear somebody. We want people who can speak well, you know. If you go to a church, you want to be able to understand the preacher. <laughs> you, want, you, you want somebody who can speak and explain and all that. I'm not saying that. But um, Paul is saying, I didn't rely upon some sort of techniques or persuasion, or rhetorical things. I just presented the gospel clearly and, and, and let God work with that. So he's trying, to, he's trying to distinguish between how he presented the gospel with uh, these other uh, sophists and philosophers and so forth, like who everything depended upon their abilities. Fortunately, you know, seeing people come to Christ doesn't necess- doesn't depend that much on our abilities. It, it depends somewhat. I mean, you got to be able to explain the gospel a little bit. You know, you got to know something. But it's not that you have to be an expert. You know, uh, to see people come to Christ. He says, verse three: I came to you in weakness and with great fear and trembling. Paul continues the description of his preaching. But now it focuses less on the form of the preaching and more directly on the preacher. It's impossible to know the exact nature of Paul's coming to them in weakness. What does that mean? It is most likely, most people think, referring to some observable physical condition. And so probably the best we can do at this point is to take the weakness to refer to his sufferings that he talks about, his hardships, uh, whatever it was that detracted from the standing and dignity of someone in the estimation of other people. In other words, uh, uh, Paul didn't, wasn't necessarily the best dressed guy. He wasn't necessarily, you know, the most eloquent person. 
he's obviously, you know, he's not, he's a pretty smart guy. I wrote these, <laughs> but I mean, he's not, he's not eloquent in the sense of these Greek philosophical preachers and so forth. Uh, he's basically a Jewish rabbi for that much, and he's just presenting the truth of the gospel. I say the main point is that for Paul, there was a genuine correspondence between his own personal weakness and his gospel. At the heart of his preaching stood the weakness of God, the story of a crucified Messiah. So his own weakness, whatever those were, his own physical problems, his own inabilities, uh, those served as a further visible demonstration of the same message, but even more to demonstrate the message was divine, not human origin of human origin. So Paul says, you know, it wasn't anything in me that was convincing, that brought this church into being. It wasn't anything in my abilities and, and, and that kind of thing. Uh, I say here, along with the weaknesses, he adds, with great fear and trembling. But it's not at all clear what this means. Probably it reflects the general picture given in Acts 18, 9 through 11, where for reasons unknown to us, Paul seems overwhelmed by the task of evangelizing in the great city. Acts 18 is, Acts 18 beginning in verse 1, is where Paul comes to Corinth on his third, second missionary journey. And he's there, and it says, One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one's going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half teaching them the Word of God. So um, um, you know, maybe he was uh, I mean, I don't know, maybe he was fearful he might rely upon his own abilities. Uh, you know, it's hard to say. He, he, but he, he's you know, we feel that. Don't you feel that sometimes? You feel overwhelmed <laughs> when you're trying to present the gospel to people. You feel fearful. You feel overwhelmed. You feel like you're not up to the task, you know. Uh, well, even the apostle <laughs> felt that. Verse 4, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Paul does not glory in his weaknesses for the Corinthians' own sake. He does so to remind them that the real power in gospel transformation does not lie in the person or the presentation of the preacher, but in the work of the Spirit. My message and my preaching refer to the content and form of Paul's actual delivery. He deliberately avoided the very thing that now fascinates them, the persuasion of wisdom. But his preaching did not lack persuasion. What it lacked was the kind of persuasion found among the sophists, the rhetoricians, where the power lay in the person and his delivery. Everything depended upon that. Paul's preaching, on the other hand, despite his personal appearance, his weaknesses, uh, whatever, whatever it was, it produced results. <laughs> you 
it produced desired results. Namely, it brought about the faith of the Corinthians. So their fascination is in the wrong thing. I mean, they've got to remember, how did I come to Christ? You know, what was, what was preached to me? What accompanied Paul's preaching was a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Paul's point is that even though he was weak and his preaching lacked rhetoric and wisdom, the Corinthians were, ver- were coming, the Corinthians were, uh, the Corinthians' very coming to faith demonstrated it did not lack power. So when he talks about a demonstration of the Spirit's power, he's talking about conversion. The greatest demonstration of the Spirit's power in the world today is conversion. The conversion of a sinner to Christ. That's the greatest power demonstration of power of the Spirit. Uh, Gordon Fee says uh, in his commentary, Thus what Paul is rejecting is not preaching, not even persuasive preaching. Rather, it's the real danger in all preaching, self-reliance. The danger always lies in letting the form and content get in the way of what should be the single concern, the gospel proclaimed through human weakness, but accompanied by the powerful work of the Spirit, so that lives are changed through a divine human encounter. And so that's a good point. We always have to remember that, you know, we want to be able to clearly present the gospel and tell others about Christ, but ultimately conversion depends upon God. It depends on the power of the Spirit to bring them to Christ. And it's easy to think, boy, if I could just get a, a better argument. <laughs> if I could just get this argument, man, I could convince them, you know, and it doesn't work that way. Because the problem, as we'll see for unsaved people, is not intellectual so much, it's moral. It's, it's the fact that we are fallen creatures and that we are haters of God. We don't like God and we don't like His message, as we'll see. <laughs> Well, now we come to uh, the second thing, B here, the wisdom of the gospel revealed by the Spirit. Say, up until this point in his letter, Paul has had a very negative view of wisdom. That is because he's arguing against a Corinthian attitude toward it that has placed him and his gospel in a less favorable light. He now makes a turn in the argument in order to reassert that the gospel he preaches is really wisdom. It's the wisdom of God. But it cannot be perceived as such by those who are pursuing wisdom. It's recognized only by those who have the Spirit because the Corinthians do not have the Spirit. Excuse me. Because the Corinthians do have the Spirit and thus the mind of Christ, they should have seen the cross for what it is, God's wisdom. By pursuing wisdom, they are acting just like those without the Spirit, the unsaved, who are pursuing wisdom but see the cross as foolishness. So verse 6, We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but the wisdom of this, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. So despite the insistence that, his, insistence that his preaching was not with wise and persuasive words, so the Corinthians' faith might not rest on human wisdom, 
Paul says, nevertheless, we do speak a message of wisdom. The shift of the plural here and in verses 7 and 13 is probably another literary plural that we saw back in 123. At most, it might include other apostolic men. So one of the confusing things here is we do, however, speak a message. This is probably just Paul referring to himself with the we. So um, we see examples of that. Um, 123, we're looking, uh, 123, but we preach Christ crucified. I mean, that could be Paul and some others, but notice, notice in 2 Corinthians 1, 13 and 14, for we do not write you anything you cannot read or understand. Now, he's writing 2 Corinthians. He's the one writing it's I, and I hope that you have understood us. Notice how he switches to the I. In part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us as we will boast of you. So, in some cultures and certain kinds of literature, it's not uncommon to people to refer themselves as we. If you're the Queen of England, for instance, (laughs) or the King of England, Queen Elizabeth never said I in her her whole reign. She always said we. You know, and it seems a little strange you've never heard it, you know. Um, we believe, we think, we, you know, who's this we? <laughs> it's just you up there, you know. But this is common uh, for monarchs to do in our Western culture. It's usually called a pearl of majesty. Fits for the queen, doesn't it? And I'm sure the king, Charles, will do the same thing if you'll hear him speak sometime. And it happens in some cultures, um, when I, was, when I was young, uh, when I was a teenager, I got involved in electronics into amateur radio, ham radio, if you know what that is. Uh, you know, transmitting, talking to others, things like that. And I remember when I first got, you know, on the air and started talking to people, everybody was saying, we. I was, you talk to somebody and say, we put this antenna up, you know, uh, we fixed, we bought this new uh, transmitter. And, you know, I, I'm just new to this, and I'm hearing this we. What is this we? Is this you and your wife put this antenna up? or what? what is this we stuff? It took me a while to learn that that's just a plural we used for an I. I mean, I don't, I don't hear it much today in ham radio, amateur radio. I don't hear it like I did back in the 50s, 60s. You know, it was, it was just... It was just very common. It was very confusing to me. So maybe there, are, it might be that there are other places or other times where people do that. I don't know if you ever heard people do that, but it was considered good uh, literary writing to do that in the ancient world. So in the ancient world, if you read writers, ancient writers, they often speak in the first person plural. We. It's a little. <laughs> And it's, until you get that, you think, who else are they talking about? And sometimes they are talking about other people. But uh, I could give you more examples where Paul is, is using the we when he just really means I. So when he says, we speak a message of wisdom, he doesn't mean we, the Corinthians. He's not talking about them. He's talking about himself. We speak a message to you. He's talking about himself. 
He could be referring to other apostles, other preachers. It could be that too, but primarily it's referring to him. And then I say, when Paul says that he does speak wisdom, by wisdom he does not refer to what's fascinating the Corinthians, wisdom that belongs strictly to this age and its rulers who are coming to nothing. Paul has already declared, we preach Christ crucified, the wisdom of God. As I say, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Greeks and Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So he says, I don't speak a message of wisdom that is what's fascinating you, that kind of uh, wisdom of the Greek philosophical tradition. So it's only, I say, it's only the mature who are able to recognize the gospel as wisdom. We might be inclined, and we, I think we would be inclined, to think that the mature refers to spiritually mature Christians. I mean, if you read that, we always speak a message uh, uh, of wisdom among the mature. You think, well, that's mature Christians. Well, unfortunately, that's wrong. <laughs> so Paul would be saying that only the mature spiritual Christians can see the wisdom in the gospel. But such a view would run counter to every, the Paul's whole argument and destroy everything he has said in 1.18 through 2.5 by admitting that the gospel has secret truths available only to a few. But Paul does not have a different gospel for different classes of Christians. Those who regarded Paul's message as foolishness were not immature Christians, but the unsaved. So remember, the contrast that we have been talking about here is between the saved and the unsaved. That's all we've been talking about. The saved understand the gospel. They see the wisdom in the gospel. The unsaved, it's the unsaved person. As we'll say, we'll get this very clear when we get to 2.14. But, you know, the old translation said, the natural man, the man without the spirit, does not accept the things that come. So it's, we're talking about a contrast between the saved and the lost. So Paul will go on to argue that the reason some do not see the wisdom in the gospel is because they lack the Holy Spirit and thus are unsaved. Not because they're immature Christians. But if the mature refers to all Christians, why does Paul use such potentially confusing terminology? Because most likely the terminology is the Corinthians terminology. Confusing to us, but not for them. In their rejection of Paul, they think he is treating them like mere babes, feeding them only with milk, while they perceive themselves to be advanced in maturity. 4.8, he'll say, already you have all you want. Now, this is sarcasm. This is irony. This is very sarcastic speaking. Oh, you have all you want. You have become rich. You have begun to reign. And that without us, how I wish you really had come to reign. So he's talking about their opinion of themselves. They think they have arrived. Oh, we, you have all you want. You become, you're mature, you know. Um, so I say here, those in Christ are mature, and thus the Corinthians are included. The Greek word for mature, teleos, indicates someone who is complete, all Christians are complete in the sense that they have been given at the time of their salvation all they need to live the Christian life. So when we get saved, 
we got everything we need. We don't need another experience. We don't need, as some people believe, a second blessing or, you know, another, uh, another spirit, another filling of the spirit or another baptism of the spirit. We've got everything we need when we get saved. We're complete in the sense we've all we need. But the Corinthians' behavior indicates they're acting like infants. Paul's concern is to persuade them to adopt the thinking that goes along with being mature in Christ. The wisdom of which Paul is now speaking is of a radically different kind from that which the Corinthians are currently pursuing, which is of, the, of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing, he says in verse 6. So the rulers of this age represent the people of this age, of Paul's time or our time, who fail to recognize the wisdom of God and therefore they stand in contrast to those of us who do recognize the wisdom of God and are destined for glory. So we speak a message of wisdom. It is wisdom, and you and I think it's great. We think God's plan of salvation is the wisest thing we've ever known. You know, how God brought about salvation, what he did in Christ. This seems very reasonable and very wise to us, but not to the unsaved, of course. Verse 7, No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. So verse 7 explains the nature of God's wisdom that made it possible for the wise of this age to, to, uh, to grasp it, made it impossible for the wise of this age to grasp it. So the wisdom of God, it's been hidden, so he says. The rules of this age didn't understand it. Why is that? He says, first, it's a mystery. Now, as you know, the word mystery, mysterion, refers to something that was formerly hidden in God from all human eyes. It's usually something maybe often and sometimes used of something in the Old Testament, but a mystery is something not mysterious in the Bible, uh, in the sense we think of mysterious, but something that was hidden from human eyes, but now is revealed in history through Christ, and it's made understandable to us through the Spirit of God. So this wisdom, the wisdom of the gospel, was not made known. It was a mystery. It was hidden. Third, it's, uh, God's, uh, excuse me. Second, God's wisdom, salvation through a crucified Messiah, has been hidden. And so the phrase here, before time began, indicates that such wisdom has been hidden from eternity until a time now when it is ready to be revealed. So it's something that was not revealed. It was hidden. Third, God's wisdom long hidden and still hidden to some was destined by God Himself for our glory before time began. What has been predestined technically is God's wisdom. The larger context indicates that Paul has in view God's gracious activity in Christ, whereby through the crucifixion he determined, he determined eternal salvation for his people, including especially the Corinthian believers. 
So just as God chose the foolish and weak for salvation, and by doing that, he shamed the wise and powerful who are being brought to nothing, as we saw in verses 26 through 28. So Paul now says that God has predestined, he has destined his people for glory, not shame. And it's done so in contrast to the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing, he says. Verse 8 repeats the failure of the rulers in terms of their responsibility for the crucifixion. God's wisdom is something that none of the rulers of this age understood. The reason for the ruler's failure is not that it was hidden, it was that it was hidden in God and could only be grasped by a revelation of the Spirit. So what they didn't understand, the people who crucified Christ, for instance, uh, was the nature of true wisdom, God's wisdom, that we have been spelling out, that is the whole plan of salvation. They didn't see that. Uh, they were ignorant of that. Um, they did what human wisdom demanded. Crucify this guy. That's the wise thing to do. That's the right thing to do. This guy is a, is a you know, the Jews, uh, Pilate didn't want to do it. Didn't seem like he wanted to do it, but they argued, hey, this guy's making himself king, and if you... If you let this guy go, you're no friend of, of the king. You're no friend of Caesar. You know? So the, the right thing to do is to crucify this guy who is a, trying to make himself king in the place of the one true king, the emperor, Caesar. And so uh, they, they uh, did what seemed to be wise because they didn't understand the plan of salvation. Uh, uh, understand. It, they, they didn't have the Spirit of God. They couldn't understand it. So they crucified the one who was them, nothing but a messianic pretender. The Jews, if we think about the Jewish rulers, they saw him as a messianic. Yeah, he claimed to be the Messiah, but he's a pretender. But in actuality, they killed the Lord of glory himself. Um, I mean, and so the irony of this is that um, the Corinthians in pursuing this wisdom that they're pursuing are pursuing what belongs to this age. They're pursuing the same kind of thinking that was used to crucify the Messiah. Uh, they're pursuing the kind of wisdom which is ultimately going to pass away. Uh, they're pursuing what the rulers of this age did when they crucified the Lord of glory. So their thinking is all wrong. <laughs> Verse 9, However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love Him. Paul concludes the argument to this point, with scriptural support. It's not clear exactly what Old Testament Paul is citing. The closest parallel come from Isaiah 64, 4, 65, 16. Paul is saying that the rulers of this age did not understand, but it is written that what they did not understand, that is, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, God has prepared for those who love Him, that is, all Christians. 
So he's saying Christure, Christ, Scripture, Old Testament Scripture, uh, supports the fact that people in the present age don't understand what God has accomplished in Christ. They don't, they don't get it. They don't understand it. Now he's going to tell us why shortly here. <laughs> These are the things God has revealed, verse 10, to us by the Spirit. So there it is. They don't understand it because... We can understand it because it's revealed to us by the Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Paul now explains how it is that those who love God understand His wisdom. It's because they have the Spirit. The reason the Spirit can reveal these things is because He searches even the deep things of God. That is, he knows God's fully and completely. So the key to understanding God's wisdom, the message of the gospel, what God is doing is the Holy Spirit. And Paul bases this upon the general principle that like is known by like, you know. Just as on the human level, he says the spirit or the mind of man knows what he's thinking, you know, so man's, only it's man's spirit or man's mind knows what he's thinking. So, so also God's spirit, who is God, knows God. So the spirit is the one who, of the Godhead who is presented as regenerating us, bringing about conviction and our ultimate salvation. And so... Uh, Humans on their own don't possess the, uh, the what don't possess the quality, the ability that makes it possible to know God or know His wisdom. It's only like is known by like. So we can only know the truth is we can only know the truth of this because God reveals it to us. And that revelation, be, you know, that revelation starts when people present the gospel to us. And then the Spirit takes that truth and we believe it, <laughs> regenerates us, gives us a new nature, a new ability, so that we say, yes, that's true. It is true. <laughs> the analogy between the man and his spirit and God and his spirit is just that. It's just an analogy when he says, you know, who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? So. You know, in the, in the Trinity, God, as I say, God's Spirit is a separate person. For that reason, Paul doesn't add the phrase within them when speaking of God's Spirit. You know, he says about a person, for who knows a spirit's person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? He leaves that out when he says, in the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So the person of the Trinity who communicates this truth to us in regeneration is the Spirit of God. For what we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. The Corinthians have received the Spirit. Therefore, they should be able to see the wisdom in the gospel. What's their problem? Their problem is not that they don't have the Spirit, but as we'll see later, it's that they are carnal, as Paul will explain in chapter 3. Verse 13, this is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities 
with spirit-taught words. Now remember I said this plural we is Paul, maybe Paul and other apostles. It's not us. This is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual reality with spiritual taught words. Paul now returns to his own preaching of God's wisdom, first mentioned in verse 6 and verse 7, and links it, links it to the same reception of the Spirit. The words spoken by Paul, the words spoken about, do not derive from human wisdom, but are taught by the Spirit. So the revelation of the Spirit is given in words, he says, which can be articulated and understood. Um, so this is a verse that many think, I think, is, is speaking about what we would call inspiration or very close to inspiration. It's saying we speak in words that are taught by the Spirit. Uh, remember 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed. See, God's Spirit, God-breathed, useful for teaching. 2 Peter, Peter says, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture. Now that phrase, prophecy of Scripture, is, is easy to misunderstand because when I read it, I think, oh, you're talking about Old Testament prophecy like Amos or you know, Isaiah. No, you'd be wrong if you thought that. <laughs> that phrase, prophecy of Scripture, is only used in the Bible of Scripture. Now, it was many, what Isaiah said was first given as prophecy, it's true, but it was written down, and it's, it's in Scripture. And so that phrase, prophecy of Scripture, always refers to Scripture, prophetic teaching, came about by the, uh, it, no prophecy came by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets though humans spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. So what we're talking about is what we call verbal inspiration, Paul says. What we speak is in words. It's verbal. Uh, it's not just thoughts or ideas. But Paul says the apostles communicate in words taught by the Spirit. And he concludes, we'll stop here, but I'll just read it. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. So there's the whole problem that Paul's found. I mean, he mentioned it already, you know, back in, uh, he said in verse 6, um, when he said, uh, well, however, we, uh, I thought it was verse 6, uh, I don't know, somewhere. I can't remember where he said it now. Maybe verse 5. I'll look back. thought he's something like that. Uh, well, I, don't know, I can't, can't remember the exact, exact verse, but he's, he alluded to it before. But here he makes it clear. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness. Well, that's what Paul's been talking about, the foolishness of the gospel. Yes, it appears to be foolishness to the person without the Spirit. And they cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. All right, we better stop here for tonight. Thank you so much for your patience, and we, Lord willing, will see you next week.